Hey guys, on this episode of Unbeatable, I get a chance to connect with a guy who has been over my head for most of my career, and I wouldn't be alive today if it wasn't for Greg Coker and his Little Bird gunship that were was over my head on more than one firefight in Iraq, Afghanistan, and in my career in the military. But by the way, in this episode, I'm going to tell you more than once what is the most deadly weapon on the battlefield, and you're going to laugh out loud. I promise you, you're going to laugh out loud when you hear what Greg and I both completely agree is the most deadly weapon on the battlefield. If you want to know what that is, you got to stay around for this episode of Unbeatable with my buddy, the Little Bird helicopter pilot, Greg Coker. Before we get into the interview, I want to remind you once again that this interview is brought to you by the Solomon Foundation. These guys have more than 7,000 investors and they're helping the local church to grow. So when you partner with the Solomon Foundation, they're going to give you an excellent return while you make an eternal impact. And if you want to know more, go check these guys out at thesolomonfoundation.org. Now here's my interview with my buddy, Greg Coker. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable. Hey, Greg, it's good to see you in person after a bunch of phone calls and text messages back and forth with each other. Yes, sir, it is, Jeff. Oh, God, it's been a long time. Yeah. How are you doing today, brother? If I was any better, I couldn't stand it. I am blessed. <laughs> you look good, man. You do. You look good. Thanks for spending a few minutes with me on this episode of the podcast. It's an honor. It, absolute honor for me, Jeff. We're going to talk about the most dangerous weapon ever created on planet Earth. And I am going to tell everybody right up front what that weapon is. And then we're going to get to that weapon. And I want you to explain to everybody why the most dangerous weapon on planet Earth is a grease pencil. Absolutely. Absolutely. You and I both know exactly what we're talking about. And everyone that's listening in the audience right now is saying, Jeff is making a joke right now. Jeff is trying to be funny by saying a grease pencil is there. It is right in front of you. Yeah. Jeff is making a joke. He's being funny about this grease pencil, but I am being absolutely serious. That is the most dangerous weapon on planet earth. It's most high-tech electronic that's right. Of all of the extraordinary technology that the modern military has at their disposal all over the world, I'm still convinced that grease pencil that you had in your hand is the most dangerous thing on the battlefield. And we're going to tell everybody why in just a few minutes. Um, the first time that I saw a little bird in action was very early in my career in the Ranger Regiment. Sure. And I was introduced, I, I came straight to the Army and straight to the Ranger Regiment. So I had the privilege of working with the 160th. And by the way, for most of our audience, they just heard a few weeks ago an incredible interview with Dan Gelata telling everybody how the Top Gun 
helicopter pilots on the planet are all in the same unit. They are all in the Special Operations Aviation Regiment. Yes. But why don't you tell everybody about this aircraft that you and I call the Little Bird, what in military nomenclature is the AH-6 or the MH-6. Would you describe what this aircraft is and a little bit about what this aircraft uh, was designed to do for the military? Yes, sir. Absolutely. The So it, it's a civilian helicopter and it's, I think it's Boeing McDonnell Douglas. It was... The, the aircraft was designed by Mr. Hughes back in 1956. And it, it's, it's a very interesting story. And he, he was very concerned about survivability in a, in a crash. So if you, if you look at this little helicopter and you, you look at the main body, well, it looks like an egg almost. And he designed it that way for crash survivability. So move forward, the, the United States Army, and it was designated MD-500, Hughes McDonnell Douglas 500. So saw a bunch, a bunch of action many, many years in Vietnam as, and then it's also known as the Loach. So talking to the Vietnam I guys, didn't know that. Yeah, yesterday. I'm learning something today. But the, the official Army designation, as we name all of our helicopters after Indian tribes, was the Cayuse. So that was the mm -hmm. official name, because we have Black Hawk, we have Apache, so on and so forth. And then as it progressed over the years, and being such a great helicopter, I mean, even back then, they had many guns on it. They had, you know, in the, in the 60s and 70s. So it was a war. Wow. A war I didn't know that. Yes, sir. It was a workhorse even back then. And goodness gracious, I, I've talked to so many Vietnam vets that flew that helicopter. And, and like me, and everybody that flies that machine or rides on that machine, they love that helicopter. Absolutely. It's, it's saved many, many lives. So as, as it progressed throughout the years, they, you know, they kept it. And, and now it's an MD-5. 30 so it's it's just advanced engine advanced main rotor advanced tail rotor and the civilian designation for it is ah6i and now in the 160th we're up to the m model i flew j j heavy j lights and then the mic model was coming on just as i was getting ready to leave retire yeah and for everyone that's listening every time that there's a major update you add a different letter to the end of that so that people yes. know you're flying a little bit different update than the helicopter yeah. a few years ago um yes yeah so the oh6 became when the 160th brought in the little bird which is in 1981 after the failed attempt of the hostage rescue in Iran in 1981 and Colonel Beckwith wanted an all army aviation unit to support his Delta force back then. And so that's how the birth of the 160th came. It was, it was Blackhawks and it was AH-6s were the original gunbirds. Yeah. Yeah. And just a couple of episodes ago, uh, Dan and I were talking about operation. Actually, I was talking just uh, two weeks ago or three weeks ago with um, 
General Jerry Boykin, who was on Operation Eagle Claw, the yes. attempt to rescue those American hostages from the embassy in Tehran, and how that thing became a giant ball of flames in the middle of that desert runway strip, Desert One runway strip, yes. which eventually led to the greatest helicopter pilots on the planet. I said this 15 times when I was talking to Dan, and I meant it every single time I said it. Yeah. These are hands down. There isn't even a close second. The greatest helicopter pilots on the planet. There isn't a close second. We don't know what we're doing, brother. We just do it. So You do it to a T. You put those helicopters in places where I'm looking at it saying, there's absolutely no way this is going to fit. We're all going to crash. And sure enough, you thread the needle with those rotor blades on those helicopters. I've seen it countless times. Yes, you have. How did you end up in the seat uh, flying helicopters? Because nobody really starts their career as a warrant officer. Nobody starts no. their career flying helicopters in the 160th. How did you, how did you get there? Well, I was, I was a child of the 60s and the 70s. So the Vietnam War, I mean, that was always on one of our, I don't know, two or three channels back then. And I, I was... Yeah, the, the helicopter, you know, as a kid sitting there watching that, I, I was just overwhelmed by this crazy whirly bird, you know, thinking land right there and take off. Yeah. Unlike sure. a big swing airplane and it could carry weapon systems. And then as I got older, you know, my dad was in the Air Force and I didn't know that. All right. Oh, what yes, did sir. you do? He well, he retired as a command master chief, so he was an E nine. Wow. He, he worked Yes, sir. He did 30 years and worked several jobs. Yeah. So started out as a missile man back in. I was going to say, not many people make it to that level in the Air Force. No, no. Wow. Less than 1%. Less than 1%. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I I just, you know, I, I really loved the aircraft and, and the Hueys and the Cobras and the Loaches. Yeah. And as I got older, you know, I kept looking at the Army as as a, I, I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do when I was a young man, like most of us. And, you know, and, and dad was like, Hey, and I wanted to fly, but I didn't have a degree. Uh -huh. So the army was my vehicle for doing that. And I enlisted in the army, went to the 101st, uh, 327th infantry. First yeah. Brigade. Great unit. Yes, yeah. Sir. And yeah, my first Brigade commander, my first boss there was Colonel Ralph Hagler. And he was. Yes, of course. That old second <laughs> ranger battalion ranger. Yes, Heck yeah. He was yep. two step five commander when they jumped into Grenada. So yep. well, I always had had him in my ear and in my head. And no, and he fully supported, you know, he's like, no, you need to go be a ranger. And I said, I will, sir, but I'm going to go to flight school too. I want to fly helicopters. I want to fly gunships and blow stuff up. And he was like, okay, that's what we're going to do. then." So applied for flight school in early 89. And it, and it, it was a process back then because that was for computers and internet. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it would take you several months to, you had to hand walk all your paperwork and get that stuff done and sign and flight physicals and fast tests and all those type of things. So yeah, somehow, Magically, I was selected to attend flight school in, in March of 89. And yeah, so that's when I started. I tracked 
I asked to fly guns and everybody thought I was crazy because uh-huh. you know, the black Hawk was new and black Hawk was new and everybody wanted to get on that new aircraft. Yeah. Yes, sir. And I said, no, I, I, I want to fly that Cobra, man. That, that thing's pretty cool. So I tracked Cobras and then my first tour was in Korea in the 517th air cab mm-hmm. up North. And yeah, what a, what a great tour and a great opportunity for a young W1 to, you know, get that experience yeah. with those guys. Yes, sir. So for the audience, there's two kinds of helicopter pilots in the United States Army. There are commissioned officers that are kind of leaders of helicopter pilots and helicopter units. They fly, they fly regularly, but the job of a warrant officer is to pretty much fly that helicopter and that's your full-time job. Um, and a warrant officer is kind of halfway between enlisted and commissioned officer. You're a specialist in one thing and nobody can do that thing better than you. All warrant officers, this is true of, but when it comes to flying with the 160th, this is what separates you. And I really, I'll say it with you a dozen times. These really are the greatest helicopter pilots on the planet. So when do you decide you want to go try out for the night stalkers? Well, I, I had seen when I was enlisted, I'd seen the little, you know, little black helicopters flying around posts. And I'd be like, who are those guys? And, you know, big sergeant. Those guys are pretty cool. Who are those guys? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's a big sergeant looking at me and say, shut up, Coker, clean your weapons, you know. (laughs) They're not there. Don't look at them. And, of course, my dad, he he knew about them. But that's. I've always been very driven in anything uh-huh. that I've done my whole life. And I wanted to go be with the best. So, yeah. So in 93, I, I went back to Campbell. I flew Apaches for a short time there at first and 101st for a couple of years. And, and I was like, you know, and I had a couple of buddies that were in B company and the 160th, they flew AHs, uh, Jerry Harp and, yeah, Mark Jones, all Mogadishu guys, actually. So, Randy Jones. And, uh, yeah, so I, you know, everybody's like, hey, put your put your assessment paperwork in. and But I hadn't, there's a standard, I don't know what it is nowadays, but they wanted you to have 1,000 hours of flight time and then 100 hours of night of vision. flying with nods, right? Yeah. Right. Well, I only had, like, 620 hours of flight time, but I had 240 hours of night vision goggles. <laughs> wow, time. flying under night, as flying a, under goggles for 240 hours. W one. Yeah. <laughs> so people are like, "This guy's a freak." Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, and the you know my buddies that were in the unit, they're like, "Hey man, get, just you know, go ahead and put your stuff in and let them take a look at it." So. Personally, I, I felt that they took a chance on Greg Coker and because I didn't meet that flight time standard. Yeah. But I had the night vision, and I know they took that into consideration, and they accepted me to come assess. So I, I went in 93 and assessed and was successful by, again, by some odd reason, grace of God, my, <laughs> you know, they're like, welcome aboard. And I never will forget that I let my board – so the final day you go into a, yeah. a a board and the commander last question was, well, Mr. Coker, he said, what, what would you like to fly? And I, I looked at him standing at attention and I said, sir, I'll fly kites 
out of hot air balloons if that's what you want me to do. Yes. And they and they all wanted to laugh, you they know, but said, it's very... that's the right answer. You yes. just chose the right answer. Yes, sir. Yeah. So yeah. So yeah, I started Green Platoon. We talked about it, Dan and I did just a couple of episodes ago about Green Platoon. But for the listeners that missed that one, why don't you give them the short version of what Green Platoon is and what it puts a pilot through? Sure, sure. So there, there's an enlisted Green Platoon, and then there's a warrant officer, officer Green Platoon. And when we start, it's it's three to four weeks. So we do CQB, we do close quarter battle training, firearms training. We do hand-to-hand combat, knife fighting course working with our pistols working with our m4s and yeah and we do some ground navigation type stuff and then the pilots we go on to our flight phase so we for the ahs it's it's about eight nine months i think at then ours was the longest period Uh like the the hawk guys be you know four five six months guys four five night but we have to learn to shoot, so that adds time yeah, yeah. to that training. So you you go when you start, you you learn to navigate on a map, a compass, and a clock to hit that target plus or minus thirty seconds. Thirty seconds. That's right. That's the standard. And you might fly two, three hours, and you must hit that TOT, that time on target, plus or minus thirty seconds. And if you don't meet that standard, then they, you know, tell you to go somewhere else and yeah. never come back or, hey, go get some more training and then, you know, come back. And so they look at the whole man at the unit. So that, yeah, that's the next. And we do all the environments, you know, we do desert, yeah. we do water, we do mountains, shoot, 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 shoot. It takes about 18, you know, anywhere from 18 to 24 months to teach a guy to shoot. Yeah to the standards that we're held to right in that helicopter and it's using boom grease yep. pencil all right so before we get to the grease pencil i want people to hear this process frankly the overwhelming majority of helicopter pilots in the military will never get the hours that they need to even try or mm-hmm. to even put the packet in they won't make it through the physical challenges of green no. platoon but then the process of becoming the kind of pilot that the 160th needs is brutal. So yes. the percentage of total pilots in the army, how many of them, entire U.S. Army, actually make it into the unit, pass uh-huh. Green Platoon, become, you know, no kidding pilots? And I'm talking all airframes in the 160th. Wow. That's a good question. I, You know, Jeff, I don't. Not very many. Yeah, very, I'm going to say, say less than, less than 10%. I'm gonna t- well, I'm going to tell you, not even 10% will qualify, will will have the hours mm-hmm. to try out. Less than mm-hmm. half of that will even get the, you know, invite. And yes. then many of them will not make it through Green Platoon. So now you're talking, you know, frankly, the numbers are classified, but just a handful of pilots in yeah. the United States Army at any one time serving well, in and- that unit. And just an example in my in my green platoon, there were four of us. So I was the only one that finished. Yeah, that's what I wanted people to hear in this audience. Like it's this hard. is no joke. 
And the four that were with you or the four that were in green platoon, all, all the rest of them were amazing pilots. Yes, just absolutely not that good. Yeah. A couple um, of them even, hey, they came back and, and were successful. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yeah. Um, hey, just for everybody who's watching this on YouTube, I did this for you today. Um, look at what I'm wearing on my shirt. You have to kind of zoom in um, and look closely. I've got the Night Stalker logo on my shirt, but of course it's black on black for a reason um, because this is my little bird shirt. Uh, uh, this is my six gun shirt. And gotcha. because it's my six gun shirt, um, it's black on black. So you'd have to freeze the camera and zoom in on YouTube to be able to see the logo. Um, but I've said this throughout my career. I would not be alive today. I've been on many, many battlefields and I've always had the privilege of being around America's greatest warriors. Some of the greatest warriors in the coalition um, and allies that we have. But I wouldn't be alive today if it wasn't for those other warriors on my left and right. I wouldn't be alive today. I've said this to more than a few pilots. If it wasn't for the Spectre gunships that were over my head, and I would not be alive today if it wasn't for the Little Birds. I don't think most people understand just how close to the fight, just how deadly that gunship is. But I said this to Dan um, a couple episodes ago. I'm going to say it to you. I am convinced that grease pencil carried the fight in Somalia and not just Somalia, in Panama, in Kuwait. Well, not Co Desert Storm, but in Iraq, in Afghanistan. Grenada. So now, yeah, now let's tell everybody about the grease pencil. What <laughs> makes the grease pencil so deadly? Because we've talked about it a bunch and people are still saying, I'm not sure I believe these two guys. I think they're making this up. No. Tell everybody about the grease pencil. Tell them what it is and what makes it so deadly. Yeah, sure. And, I, and I've had... I've had some of the world's greatest shooters at Fort Campbell or at Fort Bragg. And they would ask, they're like, man, you guys are really accurate with that helicopter. What kind of sighting system do you use? So, you know, we'll walk over to the, of course, the operators and rangers, they all know. They all like, know oh, what's going man. on, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be funny. And so, that, you know, we all wear a grease pencil on our kit. You know, right here, right there in front of you, so that out. you can easily pull it out. Yep. And they're like, "What?" And I said, "Come on, I'll show you." You know, we walk over to the helicopter, and well, and every guy's got a different style, or you know what fits him. And and uh, I said, "Yeah, look at that windscreen right there." And they're like, "Oh my gosh, you use a grease pencil mark That's on right. the windscreen." big plexiglass windscreen on the front of that helicopter and there is a little x or a crosshairs somewhere yeah. on that windscreen yeah. that's put on there by a grease pencil but tell the listener what that x or crosshair represents so that's our sight for shooting the miniguns the rockets the gal 19 and yeah we i mean I mean, we're held to very high standards to shoot very accurately, very close to our friendlies. And I mean, for me, I could put a rocket through a front door at 500 meters at night. And I could do With it all night day. night vision air. goggles on. That's what I'm saying. With night vision night goggles. Vision. Yeah. Using that grease pencil mark. Of course, it gets a little bigger at night. 
because you know they're they're a little bitty during the day, but then at night, you know, mine was probably about I don't know maybe three quarter inch diameter. But yeah, that's what we use, and that's it. That's why it takes so long to teach a new six gun to shoot. It takes literally eighteen to twenty four months to yeah. teach, and we're we're at the range at least three days a week, and then gun uh-huh. smokes and you know, all the training that we do with our customers. And I still say customers, but so do I, I think that's the right term. Yeah. I still say red and Brown, you know, and, but it's just, yeah, it was beat into us. Yeah. So yeah, that that is our sighting system. And, you know, you have to like, I'm left eye dominant. So it, it depends on the guy's eye dominance, you know? Yeah. And that is the guy a shooter. So over my tenure there in the company, 15 years, you know, and I'd ask a guy, Hey, do you shoot competitively or are you just, uh, you know, and I, and I could tell when they'd start shooting, but because as an IP and instructor, you know, you want yeah. to help them be successful as quickly and as efficiently as possible. So we can move them on to the next stage or next phase. So yeah, it's, it's, Millions and millions of rounds and thousands of rockets, man, to get. He is not exaggerating when he says millions and millions of bullets, because if you understand the rate of fire of those mini guns and you have two mini guns or two gal 19s on that thing, um, describe the rate of fire for one of those mini guns. 4,000 rounds per minute, 62 bullets per second. That's what I want people to hear. 4,000 rounds a minute may not make any sense to you, but there are six barrels. That's why we're talking about the six guns right now. And yes. those six barrels are firing more than 60 rounds per second. Like that, there was more than 60 rounds that just went towards the target. Yes. And Greg, I have had little birds come in on gun runs, no exaggeration, putting bullets 50 meters in front of my face. And yes, never once was I worried about whether or not one of those bullets was going to hit me because I trusted the little bird pilots that much. You bet. Yes, sir. And that's why we train the way we train for years and years, you know, even before Moog. And, you know, the ground guys have full faith and confidence in our abilities that we will shoot as close to them as we have to. Yeah. I mean, at Haditha Dam, I shot 12 meters in front of, Rangers, brother, 12 meters. So, but they trusted us, you know, yeah. we trust them to make the right calls. And, you know, I was, sure. I told, I told Mo, I said, this is going to be danger close, brother. He's uh, like, it's going to be really, really close. So put yeah. your head down. Yeah. But 12 um, meters, not very far. It's like, listen, you know, with all of the amazing technology in the military today, and I'm not just talking to us military, surely there's some, iron or surely there's some computer generated sites that can Mm. put rounds where you want them. But to this day, I have never seen any weapon system more accurate than a little bird and a grease pencil on the windscreen. And uh, the first time I ever saw it was in the invasion of Panama just cause right before we were getting ready to launch that night. Um, I was staging out of the hangar at Howard air force base where all of the one sixtieth was. Mm-hmm. And the 160th was getting ready to fly out to hit the target and go get Kurt Muse. Yeah. I was true. providing the, the theater level search and rescue force. And that first little bird went down with mm-hmm. Kurt Hughes, uh, Kurt Muse on it. And I had yeah. uh, MH. You know, that's right. MH. 
Um, and when it came back, it looked like you could fit that entire airframe in the back of a pickup truck. No exaggeration. Yes, sir. That's what kind of a balled up mess it was. I still remember seeing the suspension lines in the um, rotors because it was flying so low that yes. it picked up a parachute off of the ground, spun it up into the rotors, and that's what caused it to go down. Yes, sir. Um, but I want the listeners to understand what you did with that airframe, what makes your airframe so deadly is how close you are to the fight. Yes. Let's be honest. You get lots and lots of amazing aircraft in the military that are up at different levels in the, in the air. But most of what the little bird does is a hundred meters over my head. Yes. We're in Literally the close hundred meters. Yes, sir. Yeah. That's why, that's why you guys can put rounds 50 meters off of the, you know, the, the, the nose of the customers that you're supporting, um, because you're that close to the fight. Yes, sir. Yes, absolutely. And, and it's a highly yeah. maneuverable aircraft too. It's, yeah, man. Holy it's smokes. Like, okay. You've flown Cobras and a pack. Great, great, great helicopters. But you know, the little bird or the MD or the AH six, it's, it's the Lamborghini. Yeah. <laughs> of helicopters i mean man we can get that thing around so fast they call it you know you guys always call it gosh did you see the ahs in the fur ball you know we're yeah. just we're shooting and turning and shooting and upside down and coming back around and yeah <laughs> you know he is not making any of this stuff up yep no sir greg you did a lot of combat in the um 160th on in that greatest helicopter platform, most deadly weapon system in the military. Yes. But why don't you tell everybody about March 19th, 2004, tell ah. everybody what you were doing when, when you got shot down in Iraq. Yes, sir. Yeah. So we were, we were operating the insurgency had, you know, it was in full, full blown going and, so we were operating mostly between Fallujah and Ramadi. That, that's, Which is the Sunni triangle, and that's the epicenter of violence in Iraq in 04. It was the Just wild, for the listener. wild west. Yep. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. But And then there's another small town south of Fallujah, Amaria. Okay, mm -hmm. so it's about 17 miles. So that, that formed a, a triangle, if you looked on the map. You know, Fallujah, Ramadi, down to Amaria. And we called it the devil's triangle because it, it was like every terrorist in the world was there. Fallujah Ramadi down to Amaria. And we've been hitting targets constantly every night, six, seven, eight targets a night, depending on if it was wintertime or summertime. Wintertime, we have longer periods of darkness, so we can hit more targets than we can in the summertime because we have a shorter period of darkness. And for so, the listener, uh, night stalkers and the customers on the back only hit targets at night. That's why you need long periods of darkness. Well, in theory. <laughs> yeah, so, well, try to only hit targets at night. Let me put it that way. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yeah, we are night stalkers, not day stalkers. <laughs> so keep that right. But so we'd, we'd hit it. I think it was like our last target that night. Early, early morning, probably four or five o'clock in the morning on the 19th. And from that target, we got intel that there was another Al-Qaeda high value target that we were looking for. 
and they were going to meet at a house at 10 o'clock in the morning in Fallujah that morning. So we were like, oh, Lord, not a daytime hit. Yeah, like, nobody wants to hit a target during daylight hours. Oh, no, nobody. Sir. You have, and you know what it was like. So, and, and Sergeant Major, he was like, hey, we just want you guys. We had a little area just east of Fallujah where we could go land, hang out. As the Rangers had secured it, you know, and, and then the customers. And then we could kind of get a plan and refuel or rearm, whatever we right. had to do there. And, and just for the listeners, so that's called a FARP. So the 160th will put in a FARP. That's Forward Arming Refueling Point. And our enlisted guys, our crew chiefs, each helicopter has a crew chief, and we call them armament dogs, but armament personnel. So they'll, they'll be, there's always two AHs flying together yeah. with fly single mm-hmm. ship. So those, those two crew chiefs, two armament dogs will set up two pads for the two AHs, have fuel, bullets, and rockets sitting there waiting for us to reload. And by the so, way, mad respect for the FARP teams in the oh, 160th because you ooh. just go out into the middle of bad guy territory with a giant bladder of jet fuel <laughs> yes. and a whole bunch of rockets and I wait for a helicopter to show up, hoping to God that you don't get attacked by the enemy because it's not going to be good for you if you do. No, sir. No, sir. Mad respect for the FARP teams in the 160th. Yes. Absolutely. And when you watch those guys work in the FARP, they look like a NASCAR pick. They do. Man. Yep. Like, Seen it many times. Totally I mean, do. I, I, I could land, get refuel, rearm three minutes and be back in the fight. That That's just incredible. That's it, that's insane. Incredible. Yep. Yeah. So, so Sergeant Major said, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to hang out here until – hit time, which was 10 o'clock. Uh-huh. And he said, you guys crank up, go to hundred percent. And that way, if they needed us, we could respond you're, you're with good, it. Yeah. You know, you're gone in minutes. an instant. Yes. So they went, they hit the target. They got the high value target off of it. So they brought them back and had a little, had a little chat with him. <laughs> and I like how so you put that. Yes. His boss was down in Amaria. And we were looking for him. So Sergeant Major says, okay, here's what we're going to do. He says, I'm going to take my recce team, my reconnaissance team. Uh-huh. It was three gun trucks and two armored vehicles. He says, we're just going to drive down there. We're going to kill that guy. And I want you guys to go back to Biop. We were still living at Saddam International Airport on yeah. the west side in the hangars there. And he says, you, you guys have you know, we'd all been up for days and days. Yeah. Planning, hitting, you know, the deal, but just for the audience, I mean, it's nonstop, you know, we, we'd catch a combat nap now and then and get some chow or maybe go do some PT, but you know, we're always focused on the mission and time sensitive Mm -hmm. targets. So they were, they were all time sensitive targets. God show up, be there a few minutes. So, you know, we had to go and hit it. So, we fly back to Biop, Baghdad International Airport, and shut down, recock everything, check the aircraft, you know, just getting ready for the next, we call them pods, period of darkness. Mm-hmm. So next night. And it was probably about, it was a little after 12, and one of the guys came running up and says, hey, the recce team just called in a tick. 
So troops, troops in, in contact. contact. Yep. They're in trouble. So in, in another unspoken rule is that we will we will come get you if you get yeah. in trouble there's break no doubt almost every rule that's right break almost every rule to we get will to break you. every rule to come get you we will it's unspoken but everybody knows that that will happen so we were like let's saddle up and go boys for roger that it was probably about 12 30 in the afternoon i mean daytime and here we are in our two little black helicopters about, I don't know, a foot off of the trees or a foot off of the deck hauling behind to get to them because we had no situational awareness yeah. what was going on. We just heard, okay, they're in a tick or they got ambushed. So we get on, and it was like a, I don't know, 10 or 11 minute flight. But I had, I was dash two that day. So there's a lead AH and then a trail uh -huh. AH. And I had, <clears throat> I had a brand new six gun with me. First combat tour. <laughs> it, but it was, I mean, it, and I need to set the conditions. There's a, at that time, there were only 22 of us on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. Flew AH sixes. So <clears throat> unlike, a ranger battalion, well, you have three battalions. So B company, we only have about 14, 15 pilots that are FMQ, fully mission qualified fully mission, pilots yeah. that can conduct combat operations by the book. Well, we got short, you know, guys got hurt or whatever the case. Yeah. So, and my co-pilot was a BMQ. He was a basic mission qualified pilot. And I told the commander, I says, no, he's good to go. All he's got to do is sit there and arm me, <laughs> you yeah. know, and have his M4 up. But our, S, our standard operating procedure in BCO, if you're not on the controls, then you've got your M4 up and ready to suppress ready to shoot. a yeah. point target out the door. So I told him, I says, all right, man. I mean, it's, as soon as I cranked the helicopter, the hair stood up on the back of my neck. And I was hmm. like, hey. We're going into some really, really bad area. I want you to, if you see anything that moves, I want you to engage it. Okay. If they have weapons or meet the ROE at the time, rules of engagement. Yeah. And he was like, Roger that. So we take off, we get on station. We, we engage a couple targets. There, there was one group that appeared. They were trying to get down in the river and flank the vehicles. Yeah. Of, of the ground force. So, um, so then they, they got reconsolidated they had all their vehicles lined up on the road and the troop, they got the guy and the troop commander calls and says, Hey, we're, we're almost ready to exfil. Uh -huh. It was like, Oh, okay. Breathe a sigh of relief when you hear exfil. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Cause I, I mean, it was, it was intense, man. It was just, and all I could think about, was Black Hawk down? You know, that's all I could think about. Here's two black helicopters. It's daytime, and we just got done stirring the hornet's nest. Yeah, yeah, you did. So we did a couple more recce's reconnaissance in the air just to make uh -huh. sure you know nobody was trying to get to the ground force and their vehicles. And I always I always do a, a low pass, you know, over the vehicles and. 
you know, always wave to the fellas. Okay, thumbs up. We're we're getting out of here. And kind of a non-com, no-com. Yeah. Hey, we're, let's go. So I I did that. I swooped down over the top of the one of the gun trucks and, you know, waved at them. And they waved back. And I was in a climbing right-hand turn. I was about 165 feet. I had a 20-knot tailwind which helicopters and airplanes, we, we, we need headwinds. We need wind yeah, yeah. to help us with the aerodynamics of the aircraft. And this, all, all I remember is this giant explosion. And I'd been in mortar attacks and rocket attacks uh-huh. and crazy stuff. And, and I mean, it just, it just shook the helicopter. And then this white ball went right by my head. And cause I was kind of looking that way as I was in the turn <clears throat> aircraft shuttered and then we get caution warning tones in our headset that the engine's out or you know different things and i was just like oh, i wish this thing would. i wish i could turn this thing off but i can't so it got a little quiet in the helicopter because they fired a it's a man portable heat seeking missile it was an sa-16 when they, uh-huh. they did forensics and found some they wanted to confirm or deny the system. So yeah, oh, oh, dude was on and two of the operators, they saw the shot from the building is a two story building. So they started immediate suppression uh-huh. on the building, saw the missile hit my helicopter and I started an auto rotation. So that's a maneuver in helicopters that you're taught if the engine quits. So you lower the collective to keep the rotor system yeah. turning at, you know, at 90 to hundred percent RPM. And it's nothing more than a, a powered off landing an auto rotation. Mm-hmm. But keep in mind, I was in the worst conditions to conduct an auto rotation yeah, right. at that time. I had a tailwind. I was heavy. I was full of gas. I'd only made a couple engagements. We hadn't been there that long. So I entered the auto and at that at that point at that moment in time the best way i can explain it is like old 35 millimeter movie reel it was yeah. frame by frame by frame by frame funny how time slows down at that and moment adrenaline, yeah. we got some great stuff in our bodies brother you know it and isn't adrenaline the greatest drug on it's the incredible yep. <laughs> so i went to work and I was an instructor pilot too. I'd done lots and lots of auto rotations, but none for real. And uh, so, and my co-pilot said, you know, he was looking right too as we're in that in that steep turn. And he said, this about a meter long, this white hot rod went right yeah. by my head, and I actually got frag missile fragments in the side of the face and the neck as it as it went by us. So. Got the aircraft level, entered auto rotation. I didn't have time to get on the radio, put out mayday uh-huh. call. It was only about three three seconds and change from the time I entered to the time I touched down. Yeah, because of how low, t- that's the thing I was trying to stress, because of how low to the ground you are, which makes you incredibly deadly on the battlefield. But it also means if you get hit, there's going to be about a split second between getting hit and hitting the ground. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Absolutely. So I got, you know, in helicopter pilots, we use 
things around us like trees or houses or a building or to judge our height uh-huh. above the ground because there's things that we have to do in the helicopter. So at 75 feet, you start a deceleration to bleed that airspeed off. All right. And then you hold that to about 25 feet. And then you're going to pull what we call as an initial, all right, with our collective and that puts pitching those blades and it, it kind of slows us down even more. And then we level the helicopter at that point because we want to touch down level, not in a deceleration mode. And I didn't know the condition of the ground. So I, I, in my mind, I wanted a really hard decel to bleed off all the airspeed that I could to minimize my ground run because we don't have brakes or anything. You know, you can't put your foot out and stop like Fred Flintstone. (laughs) So, and I have a, you know, I had a radar altimeter, so I was cross-checking my, my rotor, my radar altimeter, and making sure I was hitting all these things. And, and again, this happened in just a few seconds. But, uh, you know, the, the human mind, it's, it's the fastest computer on the planet, always will be. And uh, so I, in my mind, again, I says, all right, I'm going to hold a little high level, and then I'm just going to pull everything I've got left in that rotor system. So what that does, it maximizes the pitch in those blades and it just cushions your landing and then you touch down. And we touched down and the other AH said he had come back around uh-huh. and, and watched it. And they, you know, he told me, he's like, man, that was, that was the best auto rotation. I'd All right. You know? If you're going to do it, that's it the is, way to do it. I said, it's like Neil Armstrong, man, landing the limb. He, you know, he only yeah. had one shot. That's right. He did it. So we touched down and it's just, you know, the terrain over there is just powder. It's like, it's not sand, it's dirt. And uh, Yeah, I called it then, moon dust over in Afghanistan. Yes. It was like moon dust. It was, man. Oh, that was another terrible place. But anyway, so we touched down and I'm thinking to myself, when we start to slide and I'm like, okay, man, we got this. You know, we're on the ground. It's all good. And... <clears throat> We slid, 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 and again, you know, dust just engulfs the cockpit. I couldn't mm-hmm. see anything. I was just hanging on to the controls, making sure my pedals were right, making sure the collective was all the way down, and then the, the cyclic is centered. And I remember we what happened was we went down. We slid about 35 meters, not far. We went down a bit of a slope, and at the bottom of that slope was soft dirt and those skids hit that soft dirt on a slope and stuck in that soft dirt and it flipped us end over end three times. (laughs) I remember hearing the rotor blades hitting the ground and I was just like, doggone man, I had this thing. I had it. Now I'm angry because I'm going to lose a helicopter. And, uh, cause I, I mean, we were sliding and, and, you know, your mind goes in nanoseconds Yeah, and, and it was, I'm not kidding, man. It was frame by frame by frame. I, everything I did in those three and a half seconds. And then it was, it was dark. I think I was knocked out probably, um, never told the docs that because if an aviator yeah. is not conscious, right. you're grounded for two years. And our docs, you know, they trust us. We're all professionals. They're like, hey, are you good to go? Roger that, sir. I'm good to go. Okay. 
give you an upslip or no, sir, I'm not good. And, you know, it's just that, it, it's just that communication and trust yeah. between yeah. flight surgeons and even the ranger docs, you know, they'd watch over us when we were out at mm-hmm. Dan, they had ranger doc with us and they'd looked after us. But yeah, so I can I came to and I, and you know, when like a parachute jump, not PLS, not too good, or, you know, the wind catches you and drags you. And so we go through those checks, you know, yeah, you're just checking deep. yourself out to say, am I all right? Do I still have all my arms and legs? Yes. I'm, I'm conscious. And, and we came to rest upside down. So we were inverted kind of hanging in the helicopter. Mm-hmm. And I remember hearing this popping noise. And the first thing that came to my mind was popcorn. It was just, it was crazy. I'm like, man, that's weird. You Dan know? talked about the popcorn a like, lot in that episode. Yep. Yes, he did. I watched it. Dan and I are good, good friends. And, but anyway, and I was like, but, oh, but man, for the people that missed that episode, what is the popcorn that you were listening to? That was ammo cooking off right behind my head. Probably about, I don't know, 1500 rounds worth in both ammo cans. Cause you got a can for each gun. Okay. And it sits right behind the pilot in the cargo area. So I was like, oh man, that's not good. That's not good. Yep. No. And then I thought about, cause I had 17 pound HE rockets on board. So then I was thinking, oh goodness, what are those things going to do? Yeah, when they right. Right. And you know, they, they didn't do anything. They didn't go off. They didn't explode. Nothing. So thank goodness. So my, you know, my first priority was, okay, we got to get out of this helicopter. This thing's on fire. And uh, then secure the area around us. Now I'm thinking, I'm not kidding. First thought was Black Hawk down. Uh Little black helicopter shot down. We're 300 meters from the bad guys. I can hear the ground force and the other AAH. They're suppressing targets. They're engaging targets. And I said, okay, we're going to be okay. So I looked over at my co-pilot. He had blood all over his face. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, man, did he get hit? And the, the little bird has a, has a, is bad about, in a crash sequence, the shoulder harness not locking for some odd reason. And I know a couple guys that that happened to, what happens is they hit the cyclic and that knocks all their teeth out in the crash sequence. So that was one of my thoughts is, okay, he, maybe he hit the cyclic and, I put my hand on his shoulder and I said, Hey, are you okay? And he kind of nodded his head and I said, all right. I said, get your rifle. Cause we carry our rifles right there, right there within reach of us. And I said, get your rifle. And, and I point because in a gun bird, you don't want to get to the front of it in case, you know, a bullet launches or a right. rocket accidentally launches. So it's just a safety factor. And I point with my, arm and I really didn't realize that we were upside down at that time either but I pointed and I said meet me over here okay and he kind of nodded his head he never looked at me he's still looking straight ahead so I I pull my belt and my latch I grab my rifle and I crawl out the front because I wanted to prioritize again and check make sure nobody was trying to come up on the helicopter and so I stood up, I took a step and I fell down and I stood up and I took a step and, I, and this happened two or three times. And I was like, Oh heck man, my leg's broken, you know? 
Mm-hmm. But what happened is I got a sting, a stinger, what they call a stinger in your lower spine, yeah. pinched a nerve and my let my right leg kind of went to sleep, but it came back. But I sat down, I pulled my pants leg up, checked my legs, checked my ankles, my feet, everything was intact and, uh, took my helmet off, checked my rifle, you know, make sure everything was good with it. Checked my pistol <clears throat> and, and then I got up and I did 360 degrees around the aircraft, you know, to make sure we were safe. And <clears throat> so I looked back and I thought about, okay, well, I'm going to get my, we carry those little rucksacks right behind our, our seats there. And I was like, dang, man, I need that rucksack. Cause there's water in there. There's night vision yeah. goggles, ammo, grenades. Then I turn around, look, and the cargo area is fully engulfed in fire. That's why the ammo was cooking off. Yeah, yeah. Popcorn. So I was like, well, that's, I'm not going to do that. That's out of the question. So I look, my co-pilot's not out. So I go to the front of the helicopter, and I was like, hey. I said, you got to get out right now. It's on fire. I mean, it's it's burning quickly. He kind of nodded his head. So... I get back out. I just kind of take a knee. I'm looking towards the east, so towards the ville where the shot came from. Towards the bad guys, yeah. Yes, towards the bad guys. And then, and and I don't know how much time went by, Jeff. I I have no idea. I really don't. And so I look back again because I was expecting, you know, him to come up. He's still in the helicopter. And now it's the fire is almost engulfed the cockpit from my angle. So I, I kind of shuffle over there. I lay my rifle down. I get on my belly. I crawl in there. I reach up and he's just looking at me and I reach up and I grab his latch and I keep mine. He's in, he's upside uh-huh. down. I just pull the latch. Well, he falls, you know, head first, uh-huh. going, gets the ground. And I just grab him. I grab him by his straps on his kit. And I just start pulling him and I pull him and I pull him. And, but when I reached up to pull his, his belt latch, the fire was, I mean, licking at his arm. And I was like, okay, man, I, he's got to get out. Right yeah. Now. Right. And so we get out and kind of get over. I, there was a little spot that I found about 50 meters away. There's a little death laid. And I was like, this is a good place. You know, we can get here. We can defend if we have to. And I put him in a prone facing to the north. I got on a knee facing to the east. And I said, hey, I said, if you hear something or see something, you know, give me a squeeze or, you know, sound off something. Let's put both eyes on it. Let's put both guns on it. Let's talk about it. We're a little jacked up right now. We both mm-hmm. had that head injuries we've both been i think we've been knocked unconscious for a few seconds but you know came to and you know and he kind of nodded his head and then i i checked him the best i could we got his helmet off i i you know thought okay he doesn't have a neck injury or his helmet looks okay my helmet had been cracked yeah in the crash sequence i'd hit the door frame and one of the tumbles and so he kind of nodded again. And again, I, I don't know how much time went by. Um, the other AH came over and we, 
you know, we kind of waved, gave a thumbs up to each other. And then he had to depart. He was almost out of gas. So he had to leave. And then I heard a vehicle and I said, Hey, I've, I've got a vehicle coming up. So he kind of scooted over and I heard it stop. <clears throat> and then I saw a cat, you know, kind of bottle. He was running. Uh-huh. I kind of, I kind of, you know, got up on my both knees to look over this little deaf leg. And then I saw a face and then a beard and then Kit. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh, I know him. <laughs> All right. That's Chaz. He's coming to get us. Yeah. And, and he stopped and he looked at us and then he took off running again. And later, a couple months later, I saw him in a chow hall one day and I said, Hey, I said, why did you stop when, you're running up to us. He goes, gravy. He said, I was like, how did those Rangers get here so fast? <laughs> he, he thought it was, he thought it was two Rangers, yeah. you know, guarding the aircraft. And then he was like, Oh no, that's gravy and his co-pilot. So <laughs> back off. We stand up and he hugs us and we're looking back at the helicopter. He, he told me later too. He said, I asked him for a fire extinguisher. So I could put the fire out. Yeah. Good luck with that. That A fire extinguisher going to put that out. No, sir. But yeah, that little helicopter was fully engulfed in fire by now. And ammo was cooking off. Everything was burning. The fuel was burning. And so he looked at me and he goes, Greg, he says, what do you want to do? And I says, I want to go find that son of a gun. And I want to shoot him in the face. And he said, get in the truck. I was angry, man. I was mad, mad, mad because I had a, yeah, I almost had it whipped. Yeah. uh, Long story short. So we get back, of course, they had a medic there, one of their docs and he was poking stuff in us and pushing pills in us and check. He kept checking us and we actually attacked the bill Uh because I wanted to clear that building to see if there was any evidence there, any dunnage, you know, anything right. that we could yeah. remember by. And uh there wasn't any. We we did. We we actually were got in a in a pretty good gunfight and our truck got stuck in the mud. So so You're having <laughs> a bad day right now. I look I was like, okay Lord, just just a break here a little bit. And so we get out. <clears throat> now we're engaging enemies off these buildings and we had a a 375 ranger in the gun they manned the guns in the gun trucks and jeremy smith at the time private smith and he was engaging targets i was engaging targets with my m4 had a dude run out on the building in a black man dress on a cell Mm -hmm. phone and i'm like okay he's up to no good i said hey sergeant major i got a target he's on cell phone he said shoot him I said, Roger Drop that. Yeah. So I put control pair in him. A couple other guys come out of a building. One was carrying RPG, the other a, an AR or a AK. So I engaged those guys. And then, and then it was just, yeah, everybody was shooting at the enemy at this time. And then the armored vehicle came around under fire. Guy jumps out with a, like a snatch strap, hooks it, hooks it to us and pulls us out of the mud. And then we continue our assault on the bill. And yeah, we, we spent the next six hours in a gunfight, Jeff. Yeah. Sure did. Sure did. Pretty exciting. You, day. 
Greg, you talk about this really well in your book. Um, by the mm -hmm. way, I want people to see, can you hold up Death Waits in the Dark so that everybody can see your book? Um, you talk about this part really well in the book, but I, I wanted you to be on this episode because part of being unbeatable is getting back in the cockpit. Nobody wants to get shot down. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, after they get shot down, you know what? I'm going to go do a staff job. Don't want to ever get put in that situation again. But they you do. don't. You get back on your horse and you do it again and again and again. And very briefly, we don't have a lot of time left, but can you talk about the emotional and the physical challenges that you had to go through to get back in the cockpit again? But then yeah. I, after you do that, I want to talk for a minute about your spiritual strength, because that comes out again and again. Your deep faith comes out again and again in the book, Death Waits in the Dark. Yes, sir. Yeah, I was, I get back and of course, you know, I sat down with all of our surgeons and we, we map out a plan and they asked me, they says, Hey, wh what do you want to do? I said, I, I want you guys to fix me so I can get back in a fight because my buddies depend on me. B company depends on me. And they kind of looked at me like, okay. Yeah. You know? This guy, but I have had a total of 42 surgeries and I have 47 pieces of titanium in my body with a few enemy frags and <laughs> I, stuff. I, we, we hit that way too fast. I want the listeners to hear this again. Listen to what it took for him to be able to get back in that aircraft and be FMQ. How many mm -hmm. surgeries, how many pieces of metal in your body? 42 surgeries total. Yes. And then 47 pieces of titanium in me. <laughs> Anybody would have tapped out after the second or third surgery. The fact that you were willing to go to those links to get back in the aircraft is nothing short of unbeatable, brother. Yes, sir. Yeah, Night Stalkers don't quit, brother. That's right. They never quit. Not Even after 47 pieces of metal in your body. No, <laughs> no. Yeah, so that's, I, and I told the, my commander, my command group that, Hey, sir, I want to get back on the horse as soon as I can, as soon as Doc says I can. And he's like, Roger that, you know, God bless you. And I was grounded for a while. So I went and did a tour with uh, the Delta guys, Beast Squadron, for, for their rotation as a fires guy and an air guy. Because I just, I just, I had to get back in the fight, man. You're the same way. I'm, we're yeah, all the same sure. way. Yeah. And so I did that. And then when I, then I worked with the 22nd SAS for a couple months. While All I was right. There. And yeah, it, it was just great, great, great operators, man. Just, yes. For some of the listeners that they don't understand that mindset, and I just want to try to explain it for a second. It's not about violence. It's not about anger. It's not about revenge. It's because my buddies who I love are still in that fight. And if I can get healthy enough physically that mm -hmm. I can get back in the fight, then I'm going to do it because of my buddies, not because of the enemy. But no. No. you talk about this part really well in the book, Death Waits in oh. the Dark. Yeah. Talk about your faith and how much of a difference that made for you after getting shot down and going through all of those surgeries to get back on the horse, air quotes, to get back in the mm -hmm. cockpit and to get back to uh, the fight again. Yes, sir. And, and, you know, I, I leaned on the Lord quite a bit and I, and I, and I prayed about it, but I mean, 
the first thing I did when I crawled out of that helicopter, I just said a really, really, you know, five or six word prayer. I said, God, just give me speed and accuracy yeah. and watch over yeah. my kids. If anything yeah. else, that's it. I didn't ask him to survive or anything. Just help me do a good job. And yes. And, and with that faith that, that gave me the strength and it gave me the courage to continue on with, you know, what I felt that I needed to do. And it's, it's like you said, it's, and we've both been in very, very bad situations. And it's not about country or your flag or any of those things. It's about the guys on the left and it's the guys a, on the right, man. It's always they, about your buddy. Yep. And that's what drove me. And I just, I love to fly. I love to fly that helicopter. And I love shooting bad guys in the face, man. I just, I love my job. And so, yes, through my faith and, and, you know, I talked to our chaplains and quite a bit, you know, to help me because it was, yeah, it, it was, it's a mental thing too, that you have to get through. It's, it was scary as heck climbing back in that. Yeah. I know that, you know that, but I don't think the average listener understands when you get back in that cockpit and you start flying again, you're thinking I could get shot down at any second because now that one heat seeking missile is around every bush, around every corner. It's in every rooftop and every alleyway. I know what that feels like, man. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it, so, it takes an incredible amount of courage to get back on the horse, as we're calling it, to get back in the cockpit and back in the fight, man. It does. It does. But we're, you know, we're all professionals and, and we love what we do and we love our units. We love our country. And that's, that was driving me. Yeah. So when I did get back up to flying and the, our, our flight docs had set up a schedule for me. So when I got back up to flying, got back up FMQ, went out and did, you know, 40 or 50 auto rotations one day. Mm -hmm. They were like, are you good, bro? And I says, yeah, man, I'm good. I'm having fun. You know, we're, yes, let's go do this. So yeah, I did five more combat tours after that. So, uh, yeah, God is good. He's got a plan. He's good all the time. Yep. Eventually you retire from the army, but I want people to hear you're still being a good dude to those guys that are guys and gals that are serving. So tell everybody why you started Blades for Brothers and what Blades for Brothers is. Sure. So I, I started knife making uh, was a little less than two years ago. And I have several friends that I was in the army with and, and then in the knife industry, they're knife makers. And and they always, you know, they always told me, they're like, hey, man, come, you know, try this, try this, try this. So one day I've got a, a good friend of mine lives about 20 miles away from me. He's a knife maker, former Marine, Jared Johnson, and just started making knives. So I, I go over there one day. He's got a coal forge. I put a railroad spike in this forge and I hammer forge this thing into a knife. And I'm like, okay, now I know why you guys are doing this. It's therapy. All right. It engages I was about to say, there's a lot of therapy banging that hammer on a hot piece of steel on the anvil that can take a lot of aggression out. Right. It's like banging steel with your pistol, you know, Mm -hmm. or with a hammer and an anvil. And yeah, so I, I was hooked, man. And yeah, I, I dove into it. I sought out the best knife makers in this country because I tell everybody, I was like, okay, I got to learn this stuff. 
I'm 63 years old. I'm 20 years behind you guys. So I sought out Got some best. catching up to do. Yes. And, and I did that in this, in the knife industry, man, these folks, they just embrace you. I mean, I, I called one guy, I said, I want to come work with you. I flew out to Florida, spent a week with him, another guy in Oregon and, you know, John Horgan, he lives about uh-huh. three hours South of me. And, and, uh, yeah. So, and Bob Horgan, he was, he was a good, good friend of mine. Yeah, he was killed yeah. in 05 out in Iraq, but an incredible knife maker, man, just like his twin brother, John. Yeah. So I told my wife one day, I says, you know, I'm getting, I'm getting so much back from this. I want to give back. I want to teach guys how to do it. I mean, I don't have a clue what I'm doing, brother, but I love doing it. So I started a nonprofit called Blades for Brothers. And we bring in vets and first responders. I've had a firefighter in here probably four or five times now. All right. Up here in Graham and teach them how to make a knife. And it's a, it's a safe place, man. It's a safe place where we can come. We can fellowship. We can learn a new trade or a, a hobby or whatever the case. And they make them a skin and knife or a fighter or whatever they want to do. And yeah, so... We're going full blast right now. Uh, check us out. We got a website, bladesforbrothers.com. And I made some knives. Uh, I call it war steel. So I made some knives. I had mini gun barrels from my crash site that I carried around for years. And I said, hey, I want to make something cool out of these. So, and I had a piece of World Trade Center steel. Yeah, the steel so from I, the Twin Towers. Wow. Yes. So I forged that steel. I got four blades out of it. Um, this is one of them. This is the mini Bob. So that's, yeah, that's 16, a beautiful knife right there. Yep. 1600 layer Damascus. That's mini gun barrels and world trade center steel. So we got a new shop that we're building. My wife Edie started that without me knowing. <laughs> and I was like, what in the world is going on? She goes, you just don't worry. I got this. That's right. Okay. But yeah, guys have been coming in helping when they can, but, We'll get there one day. We're just, we're out of money right now. (laughs) So I got to make some knives and yeah. Yeah. Well, I want people to know about Blades for Brothers because you're this nonprofit that you're doing. You're not only making amazing knives, but you're also helping guys and gals work through some of the stuff that they've gone through in combat and banging on a, on an anvil can really help you if you got a guy next to you that's worked through some of the stuff you've worked through. So you're, you're making a big difference, man. Yes, Um, Yes, we are. And together. And so here's what I want to do to end this episode with you, man, together, you and I have been talking about trying to make a difference with one of your knives. So as of today, we're going to take some of that war steel, the mini gun barrels from your gunship and the steel from the world trade centers, Mm -hmm. put it in a knife and we're going to laser engrave in that knife to honor the crew chiefs from the 160th that gave their lives in Somalia. We're going to make a knife in honor of staff Sergeant Tommy Fields. Yes. And then you and I have agreed that we're going to raffle this knife off and give a hundred percent of whatever comes in off of this raffle to the night stalkers foundation who are making a difference, um, giving scholarships, helping Mm -hmm. out the aviators and their families from the one sixtieth, um, the incredible warriors from the one sixtieth. So as of tonight, you, you have the chance to sign up or to, to, uh, 
uh, make a donation to receive this knife and this uh, raffle will end at the end of 2023, December 31st is when mm -hmm. we'll select the winner. But together, man, I'm hoping that this knife brings in $20,000, I think every penny of that, every penny of that is going to go to the Night Stalkers Foundation. There's no more of that steel on the planet. That That's it. And there never will be. Yeah. So it's, yeah. It's it's 1600 layer Damascus. And just a quick note too, on the book, Jeff, that I, I prayed about this when I wrote it and I didn't want to write it, but everybody says, you're the guy. Okay. You're the guy. You are. Yeah, you are. So, and, and I was honored because we walk among giants every day when we were in the, in our units and why I was there, I, it, I worked hard every day. I was like, man, I want to get fired today. <laughs> you know, but, but for 15 years, you're as a ranger or as yeah. an operator, man, yeah. it's always the same. Every day is a check ride. Yeah. But I decided I donate a hundred percent of the proceeds from the book. To I didn't date, know that. Wow. Yes. Today we've donated fifty six thousand dollars. Oh man, you are amazing. Nonprofits. Yeah. yeah. I'll send a check. Guy will call me. He's like, Gravy, what's this five thousand dollar check for? Man, it's a donation. You nothing. Yeah. It's from books. Well, I was yeah. going to talk about it at the end of this episode, but I'll say it now and I'll mention it again. We're going to give away a copy of your book and we're going to give yeah. it away to one of the listeners, but I'm going to give away a copy of your book just so that I can challenge everybody else to go out there and buy your book. And now yeah. you've just heard that Greg is going to give away the money that comes in <laughs> from his book. That's the kind of guy who is still giving back after yeah. years of leaving, but still making a difference for warriors. You bet. Greg, man, I have the greatest respect for you as a warrior, as a man of faith, but also as a, a great dude. So thank you for yeah, being on this episode. Been one of my heroes, man. brother. I, oh, dude, sure. that means the world to me. Thank you. you um, and thanks for working with me on this raffle so that we you can bet. honor Tommy Fields. He deserves yeah. it, but also so we can raise some money for the Night Stalker Foundation. You no bet. other unit out there deserves it more than, than the yeah. 160th does. I agree. Thanks for being unbeatable. Thanks for being a friend, Greg. And thanks for being on this episode with me, brother. Be blessed. Yeah, you too. There is not enough that I could say about how impressive Greg is as a pilot, as a warrior, as a man of faith, and as a guy who is retired from the army and continues to give back to warriors from the book sales all the way to the Blades for Brothers Foundation that he's created. I really do wanna challenge everybody to go out and check out his book, Death Waits in the Dark. I'm gonna give one copy of that book away to somebody. All you have to do to get a copy of that book, to be registered to get a free ebook uh, version, uh, a Kindle version of Death Waits in the Dark is be part of the unbeatable army list. If you're not already part of the list, just go over to unbeatablearmy.com. It's totally free. You just sign up by putting your email information in and somebody from the Unbeatable Army is going to get a copy of Greg's book. I want to say thank you for checking out this episode. If this is your first time hearing this podcast, why don't you go ahead and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you listen to this thing or maybe uh, subscribe if you want to watch Greg live or uh, watch Greg in, uh, in person, subscribe on YouTube. 
I also want to tell you about our the followers on social media. We're pretty much everywhere on social media. Just go search for us at Unbeatable Podcast and you'll find our social media pages. But you'll also find amazing people there like our fan of the week this week, John Thomas. John, thanks for being so engaged. Thanks for being so supportive. Thanks for being our amazing fan of the week this week. For the rest of you, thank you for tuning into this episode. If you want to become part of the raffle for this war steel knife that Greg has hand forged, all you got to do is go to my website, jeffstrooper.com and click on the raffle link at the top of the page. We'll put links to my website, to his, to Greg's book and to Blades for Brothers. Thank you for tuning into this episode. I hope you have been inspired by this incredible American warrior. See you next time. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable.